0: I just want to remind you, we're in 21 days of prayer and fasting. We started January 11th. What day is it? It's the 16th. So we're five days into this season of prayer. I want to encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit, if you haven't already, how you are supposed to be fasting. There's such a precious reality that the Lord says if you give up food, on this side, I will actually fill you with true food in your spirit. I mean, I think it's, it's amazing. Jesus, and Mike reminded, that this, Mike reminded us of this on Sunday, but he's in the wilderness. And he's fasting and he's praying. And then the enemy comes to him and says, why don't you turn these stones into bread? And he says that simple phrase, man does not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from his mouth. In that place of fasting, in that place of experiencing that physical weakness, he said, man, him as a man, he said, enemy, I'm not living on bread alone. I'm living on the words that are coming from my father's mouth. And then in John 4, when his disciples come to him and he's sitting at the well and he's ministering to the woman, at the well he's prophesying and he's telling her that no you don't have one husband you've had five and the man who's you're living with is not your husband and and she's just lit on fire and she goes in the city and says come and meet the man that told me everything that I've ever done and his disciples they they come to him and the idea is that they've been absent for quite a while And they know Jesus is hungry and they're begging him to eat. And he says, guys, you, he says, I have food that you know not of. And then he tells them that the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. And he says the harvest is white. And Jesus is doing the work of his father and he's feasting in the spirit. That's what my prayer is for the rock in this 21 days, that we would feast on the words from the Father's mouth that we would feast in the Spirit. Amen? Amen. Okay, so that's an encouragement to enter into the fast. Any of you as bad at fasting as I am? (laughs) Okay, good. We're not alone. It's tough. It's difficult. So if you mess up, press delete real fast, rebuke the bag of chips that you just ate, and then just... Get right back into it, okay? All right? Don't let that one meal or that one little breaking of the fast remove you from it. Say, nope, I'm still going. Amen? All right. Good, good, good. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So, we're continuing our journey. In 1 Corinthians 1 through 4, Paul is dealing with with division in the church. He says some are saying that they are of Apollo. some are saying that they are of Paul, some are saying that they are of Peter. And then he lets them know that in their division, they're actually tearing the body of Christ. He says they're, they're, the, these divisions, these schisms, these divisions, these tears, are displeasing the Lord. And... He actually feels it in his own body. They're not operating in the wisdom of God as represented in the cross. They're not laying down their lives for one another. They're not preferring one another. And he says, don't you know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? So it brings in this idea of the temple of the Holy Spirit. Don't you know, believers in Corinth, that you and your unity is housing the very presence of God. And the idea is, where there is division, God can't act and work and move like he wants to act and work and move because the temple is torn apart. But the encouragement is, if they come together in unity, and if they humble themselves, and if they take the wisdom of the cross, then God is going to be glorified in their city with power, and they're going to be walking with him in his presence, and they're going to be carriers of that glory as living stones, as those individual temples, as they, are actual, as they actually are the living temple together in unity. So that's chapters 1 through 4, and it's wonderful. Chapter 5, we looked at last week. Paul transitions, and he deals with immorality in the church. There was actually a grave sin happening a man was, was was sleeping with his stepmother, his father's wife. And we don't know if his father was alive or had gone to be with the Lord. But he was openly uh, being bold about his sin. And he was not repentant. And Paul rebukes them. He rebukes the man and says he needs to be removed from the congregation. He rebukes the church for not dealing with the sin that's in their midst. And then he encourages them. He says... But there's leaven in the church, and just like leaven or yeast would get into a batch of dough and, and affect the whole batch of dough, affect the whole loaf of bread, so was sin in the church affecting the whole body. And then he used a different analogy when they would, the Jews would celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and they would clean out the leaven from their houses. He encourages them, clean out the leaven from your house. Why? Because Christ, the Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Jesus has laid down his life so that we could be free from sin and be that pure loaf of bread. It's weird in the translations. A lot of them say, like, remove the old lump that you may be a new lump. I don't know if you've ever found that awkward praying that to the Lord. (laughs) I was praying that last week. I'm like, Lord, make me the new lump. I want to be the new lump. And I was like, that's a weird thing to say. So I started saying, make me that new loaf of bread. I want to be that holy loaf of bread. <laughs> That's what Paul said. So anyway, you can say loaf of bread, lump, the Lord knows what you mean. And then he says, Christ the Passover lamb has been sacrificed. And he says, now we get to celebrate this feast daily. That we don't, as believers in the church, that we don't just take one time a year and remove that leaven from our houses and celebrate the Passover lamb, we do it every day. He says, celebrate this feast daily. That's the idea. Remember him always. And he says, not with malice and wickedness. We can't remember the Lord by walking in malice and walking in wickedness. The word malice, I I wasn't too familiar with that word. It actually means a boldness in sinning. That you are flaunting your sin in public before others. So we cannot walk in malice and wickedness. We have to celebrate this feast with sincerity, with a pure heart. You guys know that scripture, the pure in heart shall what? See God. How many of you want to see God? How many of you want to see his presence moving, active in your life? You want to see him in the word. You want dreams and encounters where you see him. I want to see God. Like, whatever that means, Lord, see God. That's what I want to do, right? So Paul says, we celebrate this sacrifice with sincerity, with walking before him with a pure heart and walking in truth. And if you haven't heard Mike's message on truth and walking in truth, I want to encourage you to go to the website and pray through that message. I love not only to listen to messages, but I love to listen through them slowly and pray through them. It's one of the best ways to listen to messages when you, or listen to sermons. When you just take time and you press pause and you just pray that point and you journal on it. And then you can go forward. I like to listen to sermons like that You know, when I can't press pause and tell the preacher to stop. But when I can, it's so fun. So I want to encourage you to, to do that. Pray through a message or two. And go back to that message on truth that was spoken probably about three, four weeks ago here on Sunday morning. Well, now we're to chapter 6. And Paul is taking on this issue of lawsuits and brethren coming against brethren, believers coming against believers in the church and taking them before public Gentile unbelieving courts so that they can either get their money back Or they can punish the person that they are suing that has done them wrong. And Paul has quite an issue with this. So the example, again, is man A has wronged or defrauded man B. And man A is taking this guy to the court. Now, when they would take them to court in that Greek-Roman era, it was in public And it was at the Bema seat, the judgment seat, in the middle of the city where the the the, those who had authority to rule on behalf of the Roman government or on behalf of the city, the judges, the magistrates, the governors, they would sit and they would take their authority at that Bema seat and they would pronounce judgment. Sometimes a Greek court could have fifty to a hundred jurors. Now, I don't know how they would come into agreement. We have a hard enough time coming to agreement with 12 jurors, what, what would you do if you had 50 or 100 people? Anyway, I don't know if it was a two-thirds or what they needed to do, but that was a lot of people. And it was actually viewed at the time as a, as a form of entertainment. They didn't have court TV. Is that still the same thing, court TV? I don't know. When I was growing up, it was Judge Judy that was on in the afternoon. you would come home early from school and you would turn on and nothing would be on but Judge Judy, right? But the law is still even fascinating to us today. I mean, how long has, what's the show, Law and Order? Right? How long has that been on the air? It's like one of the top shows. The law today, as we, you know, John Grisham has made millions of dollars writing books on the law and entertaining us with fictional court cases. When there's a big, you know, I remember growing up and it was the O.J. Simpson trial, you know, and they literally shut down school, for the verdict of the O.J. Simpson trial. We all went into a room in an auditorium and we watched the verdict. So it's still, it, it fascinates us even today. I'm a little not caught up with the news. There's probably something, you know, really big happening right now in the law and I don't know what, what it's about, But so forgive me. So it's still a form of entertainment today. Well, back then it was the same thing. They didn't have TV. And the Bama seat would be surrounded, by seats would be surrounded uh, uh, normally like in an amphitheater to where they could house a lot of people or, or, or a lot of people could see it and many in the city would gather at the court just for entertainment and so it was a big deal to have two believers in the church at odds with one another and in a very public way kind of promoting the disunity of the church or the disunity of the body of Christ and it really affected Paul I mean I mean he was not okay with this. If you read this letter, I mean, he's, he's pretty uh, intense and in their face. I would say maybe a little irritated. Hopefully Paul, you know, Paul's like going to correct me. and It's like it was holy anger. It was righteous anger, Marcus, when you said I was irritated. I'm just playing. But Paul's displeasure with the believers of Corinth comes from two places that I see in this chapter. One is that the church of Corinth does not understand who they are. They do not understand that they are God's people that are going to be elevated to judge the world, that are going to be elevated to rule over angels, and that they can't find the wisdom and the grace, and they can't return to the word of God and do that now. And he's actually irritated with them. They don't know who... They are, and we're going to get into that. Paul kind of reaches in to the glory of the future resurrection and and, and, and calls them to live like that now. He says, that's who you are. That's who the Lord sees you as. That's what his blood has purchased. So don't wait for that day to rule and reign. Rule and reign now with Jesus. So it's this beautiful picture of like, we're walking in kingdom power, kingdom authority. We're walking under the leadership of King Jesus now. And we're looking for the day where he will return and make all things right. The second thing for a reason why Paul is irritated with them or has displeasure is that this action is destroying the church's credibility in the city. That their decision to go to court against one another isn't just affecting these two men. It's affecting the reputation of Christ in the city. It's affecting the testimony of the church. And we should have zeal in both places in our lives on very practical, with very practical things and on very practical levels. Who we are in Christ is a big deal to Paul. If you ever read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, I think. Paul says we are in him, or we are in Christ, like 10 to 14 times in those 14 verses. It's a big deal to him. And he expected this revelation to affect the everyday decisions of the church of Corinth. I wrote, in verses 1 through 11, Paul is thinking of the two Corinthian believers Paul is thinking of who, I'm sorry, of who the Corinthian believers are going to be in the resurrection, and he pulls that reality into today. Paul's view of the church is of an eternal church that will rule and reign in the resurrection. Their existence as God's future people absolutely determines their life in the present age. So let's dive in. You guys ready? Verse 1. Paul says, when one of you has a grievance against one another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Now again, I've described the scenario. It's probably there's, there's money involved. Paul uses the word defrauding in this chapter. But when, when Paul opens this up, he's like, he's horrified. Now I thought it was interesting as I was studying this this week, you know, we say in our translations, does one dare, but it's almost, the language is stronger than that in the Greek, and it's almost as Paul is saying, you have the nerve or you have the gall to go to law before the unrighteous, instead of letting the saints or the people who know the will of God speak into this situation. Here, Paul calls those who are going before the unrighteous. Oh, here, as, as they're going before the unrighteous, Paul calls them unrighteous here, but later on in the chapter, he calls them unbelievers. He's not saying the courts are corrupt. He's saying the people that you are putting yourself before to, to give judgment and to decipher right and wrong are not filled with the Holy Spirit. They're not the righteousness of God. They're not being led by the Lord. Paul is going to unfold that as we move on. Let's go to verse 2. Now this is astonishing to me. Paul says, how dare you go to court before unbelievers, before unrighteous people, and then he reminds them of who they are in verse 2. He says, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Now, Paul's whole argument is laid out with rhetorical questions in chapter 6. There's about six or seven rhetorical questions through the whole chapter. We're not going to get through all of them. and We're only going to cover the first part of the chapter tonight. But this is one of the first rhetorical questions. The idea is that they should have known or they did know who they are, but they weren't acting like it. Paul says... Do you not know that the saints, that was the Corinthian church, that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent or do you not have the ability to try trivial cases? And the the idea is that that this is a small thing that they are talking about. Now, I'm sure it felt really big to the man who got defrauded, to the man who lost a lot of money. I'm sure that felt really big. But Paul is calling him to look to the resurrection, to look to what's to come, and to look at the reputation of Christ in the city. And in Paul's eyes, if we set our eyes on that, that this court case becomes a very small thing. Now, I found, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here, But I found that to be real in my own life. Something feels big. Somebody wrongs me. Somebody speaks against me. I lose some money. I think of a time where we were in Brazil, and we had decided to come back. And we lost quite a bit of money in our transition. And that money could weigh on me, that money could Uh, That guy said he would do that for me, and he didn't do that, and I lost this amount of money. And I could get really bummed and mad. (laughs) How many of you guys have lost money? It just makes you mad, right? And I experience those emotions. But then I look to the treasure that's going to be given me if I forgive that person. I look to the reward that's going to be given to me when I stand before the throne of God and I say, Lord, you see that money that I lost in obeying you. You can provide. You can pour out and open up the windows of heaven over my life. We had some trials in Brazil. We had a, a, a landlord <laughs> that... Uh, was one of the first enemies that Rachel and I experienced, kind of set herself against us to take advantage of us and, and uh, tricked us into signing a contract that we should have never have signed. And we thought we were signing a one-year contract. It was a three-year contract. And the first week in the house, the floors started to fall apart. I think by the time we moved out a year later, we had like 12 holes in our wooden floor and mice and rats were crawling up in our house. And It's just terrible, you know? Rachel says it wasn't that bad. But you give the mic to the preacher and it becomes worse. So, okay. So, it wasn't that bad. But, but, and then when we realized, like, oh, she, this was intentional. Like, she's not, this wasn't an accident. And she's kind of locked us into this thing. And we're, you know, thinking about going to the courts and thinking about, like, what do we have to do? And kind of confronted with some of these things, well, anyway, the Lord delivered us and we were able to get out of the contract. And but I just remember the emotions that I was going through as that woman was coming against us. But then I would set my eyes. I would look up. I would do that Colossians 3. Get your eyes off the world. Look up to Jesus. Look to the unseen. Look to Revelation 4 and Revelation 5. Get your eyes on him. Worship him. Know where you're going, that death will have no sting, that you will sit on thrones ruling and reigning with Jesus, and it would just cause my heart to be able to to let go of things in this life. And that's basically what Paul is saying here. He's saying, don't you know where you're going? Don't you know the authority I've given you? The saints are going to judge the world. Now let's look at that just for a second that's the question he promotes. That's the question that he puts before them. The question is, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Now, this is a very scriptural thing. Let's go first to Daniel chapter 7, verse 26 and 27. I think we'll have it on the board. It's our first slide. This is a beautiful passage. Daniel chapter 7 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. It says this in verse 26, but the court shall sit in judgment. Some translations say the courts shall be seated. Guys, there are courts in heaven that God is overseeing. There is judgment that is of a higher order than this life. And those are the courts we are living for. That's where we want to be justified, and we are justified. We can enter before the judge. We can enter before God on his throne. And because you are covered by the blood of Jesus, guess what? The judge is going to side in your favor. Let's get into this. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. Now that dominion is the dominion of the false prophet and the antichrist that Daniel chapter 7 is describing. It's describing the last three and a half years. And no matter what Satan does in his rage to try to thwart the will of God. How many of you guys know that he's already been defeated? That final blow was hit. Or that final blow he received at the cross. When those nails were being driven in. Jesus was conquering. Jesus was, was moving forward his kingdom and bringing us into it. And the plan of the enemy to try to kill the Son of God resulted in the enemy's final destruction. And that's what Daniel 7 is talking about. The court shall sit in judgment, and the dominion of the Antichrist, and in the future the dominion of Satan forever will be taken away, hallelujah, hallelujah, And they will be consumed forever. Verse 27. Now, here, this is just wonderful. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to who? To the people of the saints of the Most High. Is that the translation I used? (laughs) It shall be given to the people of the saints. Of the Most High. Now, we think it should read, it will be given to Jesus, and then He will give it to His people. And that's true. That's how we're going to receive the kingdom. It's Jesus' kingdom. And He brings us, us, us into it as His bride, as His brothers, as His sisters, as His co heirs. So it's His kingdom. But Daniel is writing, and he's like, and he sees it, and he sees the kingdom. Is being given to the saints. To those who are washed. To those who are sanctified. To those who are justified. And it goes on. And his kingdom, because that's true. It's Jesus' kingdom. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom. And all dominions shall serve and obey him. So all dominion, all, 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 everyone is serving and obeying Jesus. It's his dominion. Yet he partners with us. And he's giving it to us. And Paul is reminding the Corinthian church in chapter 6, do you not know it's all going to be given to you? Do you not know you're going to rule and reign all things? So why not access that wisdom through the spirit that you have to make these trivial decisions and use the wisdom of God in this decision? Let's go to our second verse on the saints will judge the world. Revelation chapter 20, verses, well, really just verse 4. Now this is the famous passage of the millennial kingdom. If that's a new phrase for you, Jesus is going to come and reign on this earth for a thousand years. And then at the end of that thousand years, there's going to be a second rebellion. This is all laid out in Revelation chapter 20. At the end of that 1,000 years, the enemy, which is bound for a 1,000 years, will be released one more time, and there will be a second try, uh, as he'll try to overflow, overthrow the kingdom of God for a second time, said the Lord will defend his people with fire. At the end of that, he will take the enemy, Satan, and throw him into the lake of fire with the false prophet and the Antichrist. And then there will be the great white throne judgment of all creation. You will have already been judged. You will already been ruling and reigning with Jesus for a thousand years. You get the glory of the first resurrection, as it says here. And then come the new heavens and the new earth. And everyone say hallelujah. And we don't know much of what that's going to be like, but it's going to be glorious. The Bible actually does speak to it. But anyway, we won't go there. So, Revelation chapter 20. This is glorious, though. After the great rebellion, after Satan tries to overthrow the leadership of the earth with the Antichrist, and the Antichrist is defeated, and Jesus has returned, and he's thrown into the lake of fire. In verse 4 of chapter 20, it says this. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Now that's believers, that's saints there. I saw seated on thrones those whom the authority to judge was committed. This is Peter when he asks Jesus, that rich young ruler, he he rejected you, he refused you, he couldn't give up his riches to follow you. But he looks at Jesus in Matthew 19. And he says, But Jesus, we have given up everything to follow you. He says, and the idea is so what will our portion be when you come into the glory of your kingdom? Now you would think right there Jesus would rebuke Peter and be like, Peter, you should just follow me for following me, and you shouldn't think about any of that, and da da da. That's not what Jesus says. I think Jesus looks in his eyes, he says, Oh, Peter, you have given up everything to follow me. And if you stay faithful, Jesus doesn't say it like this, but this is Marcus's paraphrase. He says, if you stay faithful in following me, he says, you will sit on, you and your friends around you will sit on 12 thrones and you will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Meaning, you will lead the earth with me and my authority and you will be my right-hand guys. Wouldn't that be wonderful to hear that from Jesus? I mean, what if a man of great power walked into this room and said, if you follow me, I will make you the CEO of my company, and you and I will lead this company together. That'd be kind of fun, right? You'd already be thinking of, whoa, the bank account, whoa, da-da-da-da. What if the president take or leave your views whatever but what if somebody who was the president came in and he said hey I've been looking for a vice president and I think it should be you and I think you and I should lead this country together I think you have the right ideas for economics the right ideas for social reform and the right ideas for the family and I want to hear from you I don't want us to do this together that'd be pretty cool right I think everyone in this room would be going like, I'm not smart enough, I'm not qualified enough. But that'd be a a high honor, right? That's what Jesus is doing with Peter in Matthew 19. He says, Peter, he says, oh, you've made the best choice of your life to follow me. And then he goes on. He says, not only are you going to rule and reign with me in my authority, he says, you who have given up lands and family and... uh, houses, and I think he even says children. He says, you who have given these things up, he says, you will receive a hundredfold in this life and the next, meaning I will remember you now as you're walking with me, and I will remember you in the resurrection. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus could have just said, I'll remember you then, and you got to trudge through life now. He says, no, you who are following me, I will give you authority then to rule and reign. And, I, and you can enter into that same authority now as you follow me. So, Revelation has been on the board for a while. Let's go back to it. Then I saw thrones. Seated on them were those to whom authority to judge had been committed. Again, that's those who have gone before us. And then there's this other group of people. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And they had not worshiped the beast in its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. So there's two groups. There's those who are already sitting on thrones and there are those who had been beheaded, basically who are just coming out of this terrible time of tribulation. And it says this, they, that's the two of these groups together, they came to life And they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now what I don't have on the board is this. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. It says, this is the first resurrection and blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Such the second death has no power over and they will be priests of God and of Jesus. They will minister To God, They will minister alongside, well, they will minister to God as priests. And then it says they will reign with him for a thousand years. So we get to minister to God and then we get to administrate the earth next to God. It's a beautiful promise. So Paul, let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He's using this grand promise and he's pulling this promise into reality for the present day. Now, I think that's one of the, the, the glorious things of knowing the hope of the resurrection is that we get to go, God, if you're going to give me life then, Lord, pour out that same life right now. That's what Jesus was saying when he was, in John 11, when he was talking to Mary and talking to Martha, and he was telling them, guys, I am the resurrection. I am the life. That power that's going to raise everyone from the grave in the age to come, it's standing right before you right now. He's the resurrection. He's the life. And in the same way, we'll experience that glory then. We get to experience that glory now. Oh, too many good verses. Let's go down to verse 3. I think this is amazing. Paul says, Do you not know that we are to judge angels? So he first said, Do you not know you're going to judge the world? And then he says, And do you not know that that you're going to judge angels? You're actually going to be given greater authority than the angels in the age to come. He says this, How much more then matters pertaining to this life? Again, he's like, There is wisdom you can access within the church to to judge, to rule over, to to have discernment. He says you're going to have discernment to lead the nations. You're going to have discernment to judge and to decipher rightly angels and their future. Now, we don't know if these are the the angels that are bound in change of darkness that 2 Peter and Jude speak of. It said angels left their unnatural abode Probably the angels of, uh, at the flood, when the Lord was judging the earth, and there was this this unnatural relation between angels and man. It's Genesis chapter six. You wrestle with it. I'm not going to go into that tonight. But Second Peter and Jude say there's actually angels that are being bound in darkness, in chains of darkness, and they're awaiting the eternal. Judgment of the Lord. So those are the angels that we're going to judge. Or, and I don't think, I think Paul, when he says we're going to have authority over angels, I think he means all angels. And the reason I think that is because of this. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. So we're just going to kind of go through this slowly. It says, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. So, he's making, the uh, the author of Hebrews is making his argument in chapter 1 that Jesus has greater authority than the angels, that he has risen to a higher place in glory at the right hand of the authority of the majesty on high. And then it says, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. And that subjection, again, is going to be to Jesus. Jesus is going to give Leadership to the world with his saints. Let's continue. Of which we are speaking, it has been testified somewhere what is man that you are mindful of him, and the Son of Man that you care for him? So, the psalmist, this is Psalm 8 that the writer of Hebrews is referencing. And the idea is why would God even care or pay attention to mankind? God is so full of majesty, so full of splendor. The psalmist opens up with, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name. And why would you even think about us? And then it says, Yet you have made him for a little while lower than the angels. And you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now the writer of Hebrews goes on to explain that this is fulfilled in Jesus. Okay, so let's go to verse. Let's go to verse uh, eight. The 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 next slide, the middle of verse eight. So now, in putting everything in subjection to Him, that's man, that's us. He left nothing outside His control. So originally, nothing was left outside of the authority of man. But at present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. So we don't see everything in subjection to us, do we? No. We see very little that (laughs) obeys what we say. Just walk into my family and see me talk to my teenagers, you know. There's an argument. There's a conflict. Wait a second. Oh, everything was originally put in subjection under me. I was supposed to rule and reign. Well, sin got in the way, okay? but we get to take authority over that. But, so we don't see that now. In verse 9 it says, but we see him. We see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste taste death for everyone. So there's this reality of Psalm 8 that Jesus has fulfilled. He who was in the form of God made a little lower than the angels for a little while, then suffered, and then was raised to the right hand of his Father, given, given glory and crown and, an, and honor so that by the grace of God he might taste death for us. Amen? And then the writer of Hebrews goes on. Let's go to verse 11. It says, For he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified, or, and he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, all have one source. That is, why he is not, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Basically, it's saying that Jesus, who sanctifies us, and we who are sanctified, we have one source now. We have the Father. And that is why, because we have one source, because we have one parent, because we have one Father, Jesus is not ashamed to say, you're my brother. And since all things have been put under his feet, therefore all things will be put under our feet. So the summary of everything I just said is, the leadership of the world is not going to be given to angels, but to Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for a time and has ascended to the right hand of the Father. And all things have been placed under his feet. And then in that authority, he calls you and I brothers. He calls you and I co-heirs. So again, that's a lofty, that's a big reality. How many of you guys, when you wake up in the morning, say, I'm going to rule over all creation with Jesus. And I am going to have greater authority than all the angels. How many of you think of yourselves that way? Paul's encouragement to us in 1 Corinthians is we should think of ourselves that way. We should make decisions about life in very practical ways on the basis that we will rule and reign with Jesus. On the basis that we will be given more authority and we will judge angels. So I want to encourage us tonight, if we will have grace in the Spirit to do that then, we have the same access to that wisdom, same access to God, same access to the Spirit now. And in our lives, with these seemingly big matters, maybe it is a lawsuit you're going through, maybe it's, maybe it's, Something in your marriage, maybe it's on the brink of divorce, maybe it's, and it's those things that feel really big. Maybe it's something with your teenager, or it's something in your finances. Paul says, you have access to the wisdom of the Holy Spirit now, and not only that, you have access to the power of God now. Lift up your voice to God. Cry out for his wisdom, cry out for his power, and then walk in the wisdom that he gives. Now, this wisdom is not going to look like the world. It's not going to look like cunning and deceiving and and trying to gain things for yourself. It's going to look like laying down your life. It's going to look like uh, blessing your enemies. It's going to look like serving those who are cursing you. It's going to look like giving of your finances. It's going to look like in a fast. Why would it be wisdom for me not to eat and believe that God's going to fill me with his Holy Spirit and fill me with his word? Guys, that's the wisdom of heaven. It's different. It's backwards. But James tells us that it's pure. That it's peaceable. It brings peace in your life. It's from above. So my encouragement to us tonight is in those real matters of our life, we need to run to the Word of God and we need to run to Jesus in prayer. We need to talk to the Holy Spirit and we need to get His mind on these earthly decisions that we have to make. Amen? And we need to know who we are, that we are sons and daughters of God, that we are in His kingdom, obeying His kingship, waiting on his lordship to manifest in all the earth. Amen? All right. Why don't we just stand and I'll pray for you. Lord, I thank you for these verses in 1 Corinthians 6. I thank you that you have purchased us for such a wonderful destiny. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would convince us by your power who we are in God. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would renew our minds, that you would unfold to us, that you would reveal to us the dignity that is ours as as sons of God, the honor that is ours as daughters of God, of God, as fellow heirs with Jesus. And I pray that we would enter into that inheritance even now. That we would not wait only for that day, but in hope of that day, we would be, be, begin to exercise the authority that you have given us now. Lord, I pray in the small decisions of our life and the big decisions of our life that we would make decisions based on who we are in you and not concerning the fear that we're experiencing on this side. I pray that we would make decisions to love you with all of our heart, make decisions to serve and lift up our neighbors as ourselves. The new commandment that you give us that we would love those around us with the same love that you loved us, that sacrificial, going low, giving of our lives, love. And in that, you would pour out your power. Lord, I pray for all those that are fasting in this season. I ask you to help us. I ask you to undergird us. I ask you to breathe life and to release light in this 21 days. I pray that you would draw our church into this fast in a greater way by your Holy Spirit. Do what we cannot do. Holy Spirit, encourage us and woo us to draw near to Jesus in this 21 days. We pray for Sunday morning as Robbie Dawkins uh, is with us and for Sunday night. Lord, we ask you to pour out your Holy Spirit, open up the heavens, grant glory and grace to be upon this congregation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Love you guys.